This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A bit later in the hour, the wonderful world of everything, and I mean everything, we don't know about the universe, physics, philosophy, and the nature of, of everything. You'll see we'll talk about it. But uh, look down at your hand. Are you holding a cell phone right now? If it's not there, it's probably in your pocket or at least within arm's reach, right? These days, most people are never more than a few feet away from their phones, sometimes just a few inches. And scientists have studied whether long-term exposure to cell phone radiation could have an adverse impact on human health, even though there's no strong evidence to suggest that these devices are unsafe. But last week, the California Department of Public Health issued guidelines that seemed to alarm people. With me to discuss the ramifications of the California guidelines, as well as other short subjects in science, is Sophie Bushwick, Senior Editor for Popular Science. Hi, Sophie. Welcome back. Thanks. So California guidelines about how to reduce exposure to cell phone radi radiation doesn't say that it definitely causes cancer, right, or other illnesses, but people have sort of interpreted it. Right. That I mean, way. the fact that they've issued guidelines saying here's how to reduce your cell phone exposure seems to indicate that cell phone exposure is a problem. Whereas in reality, I think the scientific consensus right now is they haven't found a they haven't found a strong connection right. between exposure to cell phone radiation and uh, brain cancer or other health problems. But they have said that we need to keep studying this issue in the long term. So the people who are anti-cell phone radiation exposure, have they jumped on this to say, see, we're right? Right. Some people, I think, have. They've said, look, this is vindication. But I, I think that for that reason, the guidelines are a little misguided because it's creating a lot of fear around an issue that we're not sure people actually need to be afraid of. And I think really... The, the biggest health hazard that cell phones cause is a real health hazard, and that's texting and driving. And texting and driving is has killed and will kill far more people than brain cancer caused by cell phone radiation. So I think that if people are trying to find an issue to worry about, yeah. then that's what they should be focusing on. A bigger issue, yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. let's move on to uh, some strange animal behavior involving uh, macaques in central Japan. I understand the monkeys are getting a little frisky with their neighbors. That's the, right. The deer? That's Tell us what's going on there. <laughs> so uh, for, for a while, re people have noticed that these uh, Japanese macaques like to ride on the Sika deer that live in the region. But in the past few years, researchers have noticed um, a, a couple dozen cases of adolescent female macaques jumping on the deer and then moving their pelvises back and forth in uh, a sexual manner. And they have also noticed that this when this happens, when the female macaques try to do this to um, female deer or to adolescent male deer, the deer tend to buck them off. But when they jump on fully grown male deer, they seem to let them be. So we don't know the reason, the difference. We're not sure why only some of the deer accept it because most of the deer accept the monkeys riding on them because that's sort of um, a mutually beneficial arrangement. The monkeys will pick um, uh, skin parasites like nits off the deer while they're up there. So the deer gets something out of the exchange. So why, why would a monkey try to procreate with a deer? I mean, <laughs> Right. It's a weird question. But the fact is that interspecies sex does happen in the animal kingdom. So you've got it sometimes between similar animals like horses and donkeys creating mules. But you also have this between completely dissimilar species. In the Antarctic, they've observed um, seals getting it on with penguins. So I think this just sort of shows that uh, animals like sex and they're <laughs> indiscriminate about it at times. I know some puppies on your leg sometimes mm -hmm. <laughs> sort of doing the same thing. Exactly. So we know. Uh, we also have some new information about the interstellar object that visit us 
visited us a few months ago, Oumuamua. Did I get that right? Oumuamua. Oumuamua. Why, why do they call it that, first of all? It's a Hawaiian word that ah. means scout, which is certainly uh, fodder for conspiracy theorists. It was first <laughs> observed by Hawaiian Observatory. Um, but I, I think this object is fascinating. Um, some people are saying, oh, it's an alien probe, and it's probably not an alien probe, but what it is is still really cool. So the latest observations have um, researchers now think that it has uh, it's this cigar-shaped object about 700 feet long. That's about two football fields in length. Mm-hmm. And they think its core is made out of ice. And it's insulated with this outer layer of goo, this carbon-based material that surrounds the ice and insulates it so that it can travel through our solar through our solar system without that icy heart melting. Oh, so uh, it, it's a thick coating, sort of space snot. I'll call it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's like a really gross layer of space <laughs> snot. They think that what happened was this object used to be coated in um, a carbon dioxide ice, uh, sort of like dry ice, and that as it traveled through interstellar space, I mean, this is an object that's about 100 million years old, so it's had lots of years of traveling through interstellar space, and the cosmic radiation around it broke down hmm. that icy outer layer and turned it into this space snot, as so, you call it. <laughs> so it's gone now, right? It's, it is not a travel. He's not alien life or something like alien no. spaceship. What people were talking about it. But. We don't think it's an alien spaceship, and it's it's zipped past us. It's actually traveling away from us at twenty seven uh, miles per second, so a marathon mm. every second. Mm-hmm. Finally, there is this study that uh, shows that kids think birthday parties are what makes them get older. This is, I think, the cutest study I've heard about this year. Yes, uh, so little kids, they think that the mechanism that makes them get an age get a year older is the actual birthday party itself. So this is a new study looking at American children, but previous studies have found this um, in Israeli children. And basically what happens is when kids are born, they don't have a sense of time as a continuum. So they have to learn that it is. They don't think, oh, I was three and then a year passed and so now I have turned four. They think, today I am four. Thus, it must be the party that I'm having today that's turning me for. Oh, it's the party. Mm-hmm. So they wait for the party because their, their their mom or dad is saying, hey, you're not four yet. That'll happen on Saturday when we have the party. Exactly. And so they think, oh, it's the party that's done it. Okay. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think it's fascinating. Just we, we think of time as we have this very... Um, intuitive sense of what time is, how much time passes in an hour. And we forget that when we were little, we didn't have this sense. We weren't born with it. We learned it. And then it became such an ingrained part of our minds that we think we've always known it. You know, physicists, so we're going to talk about this later, talk about time, still think, trying to figure out how time works. Right. We we don't, when when you actually, we just make all these assumptions about time. But when you actually start thinking about it, questions like, why does time only flow forward all of a sudden mm. become really relevant and interesting? Mm-hmm. Hang around for the rest of the hour. Sophie, have a good holiday. Thanks. You so, too. So, Sophie Bushwick, Senior Editor for Popular Science. And now it's time to play Good Thing, Bad Thing. Because every story has a flip side... Now, we all know that exercise is good for you, right? You don't necessarily have to run a marathon or spend hours in the gym. Even a good brisk walk has benefits for the cardiovascular system. But research published this month in The Lancet indicates that maybe not all walks are created equal. Joining me to talk about it is Jonathan Newman. He's a cardiologist, assistant professor of medicine at New York University School of Medicine. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Now, exercise is still good for you, right? No matter where you walk. That's that's right, Ira. And and I think um, it's tempting to extrapolate the results of this study. Uh, in which the investigators did a really nice design and looked at um, uh, some people over the age of 60 with either some chronic breathing problems or some people that had had previous heart trouble and some folks that were normal and had them walk in a highly trafficked area in London, Oxford Street, and then for comparison in Hyde Park, uh, being in New York, the equivalent would be Central Park or Prospect Park in Brooklyn, and looked at a whole host of physiologic parameters, and they looked at vascular function, a non-invasive way we can look at what your arteries are doing in response to a whole host of things, physical activity being one. And what they found, interestingly, was if you, um, if you walk, and this is known with physical activity, um, there are some beneficial properties or beneficial effects on the function of your arteries. And those benefits were attenuated and in some cases reversed when walking in a high uh, an area of high traffic, high particulate air pollution due to ve hmm. uh, vehicular traffic, largely. Um, but the overwhelming evidence, and and uh, in other studies that have looked at this in particular, is in balance exercise, even in in uh, in areas, urban areas with high levels of air pollution or other pollutants, uh, there is a benefit still to physical activity or exercise in that, set in that setting. It may be less, and there may be other physiological characteristics, but um, this is not a, a reason to stop walking hmm. uh, along busy streets. Let's say, do, do we, is it the carbon? Is it the carbon monoxide? Is it the ozone, or is it the soot that seems right. to so, be? That's a really interesting question, and, and the short answer is we don't know exactly. Um, there are, there's been a lot of very important and interesting research from uh, looking at what air pollution does on the population level, on the individual and the source constituents, the individual things that make up air pollution, and which one of those things may be causing certain effects, and it varies uh, on the amount of, you know, the temperature or the humidity uh, can kind of exacerbate or ameliorate some of those effects. What I think is particularly interesting is that we know, based on a whole host of data, that air pollution and other environmental exposures, in, in my particular area of interest, have adverse cardiovascular effects, affect your heart and arteries in your body. And we don't yet know exactly why. There's a lot of good work that has been done to try and understand that. And this is showing that, in fact, you can measure some of these effects on the moment-to-moment -moment basis, and that may give us greater insight into what's going on for heart disease risk in people at, let's say, elevated risk who have diabetes or who have other risk factors for heart disease. We may be able to understand more about heart disease itself mm -hmm. based to our response to this stimulus. So you see your take-home message is it's, it's better to walk than not walk, and if you'll if you're contemplating where to walk, it's better to go to the park instead of the city street. That that is correct. I think that's a reasonable summary. And I would say that there are there's been some nice work modeling studies that have shown that there are very few places in the world and very few times in those places where the risk of limited physical activity uh, outweighs mm. the benefit of that activity. But it is some caution for people with multiple health conditions, lung disease, heart disease, that 
this it may be a factor that mm-hmm. may exacerbate some existing symptoms that they have. Thank you, Dr. Newman. Have a good weekend. Uh, Jonathan Newman, cardiologist, assistant professor of medicine at NYU School of Medicine. We're going to take a break. When we come back, the wide, wonderful, bewildering at times world of physics, what we don't know, what we wish we knew, and what we might need a new approach about. What? You know, where do we go with physics here? We'll talk about it after the break. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. You know, scientists are likely to be the first people to tell you that there's a lot they don't know. After all, their life's work is to answer questions. And without questions, why look for the answers? But in physics, the questions can get mind-boggling at times. Why can't we move around in time, that fourth dimension, as easily as we do in the other three dimensions? And what is space, the empty stuff? What is it made of? And is it really empty after all? Is the universe made up of some kind of matter? One kind of matter? All kinds of matter? How many kinds of matter? These are all questions we don't know the answers to yet. That's before we even get to the more mind-boggling questions about quarks, quantum gravity, and dark energy. How about supersymmetry? I bet that's something you wonder about daily, right? But my guest would say therein lies the thrill. The chase can be the most fun part of physics. And here to explore those questions at the frontiers of physics with me today and help us appreciate the confounding Often wonderful world of physics are my guests. Jimena Canales is a science historian at the Graduate School at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. She's the author of The Physicist and the Philosopher, Einstein Bergson, and the debate that changed our understanding of times. Welcome to Science Friday, Dr. Canales. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Sarah Dumers is Associate Professor of Physics at uh, Yale University and Experimental Physicist at CERN. Welcome to Science Friday. Great. Thanks to be here. Uh, Nice to be here. (laughs) It's nice to have you. And Daniel Whiteson is Professor of Experimental, Experimental Physics at the University of California at Irvine. He's also a researcher at CERN and an author of We Have No Idea, A Guide to the Unknown universe. And if you have no idea out in the audience and you have questions, we'd love to hear from you. What about the nature of time, the end of the universe, all kinds of stuff. Give us a call. Our number 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK. And as always, you can tweet us uh, at SciFry. Uh, let me begin uh, with you, Dr. Whitson. The, you, your book gives us 17 big questions about the universe that we don't have the answer for. Can you give us uh, just a few of those, maybe? Sure. Um, thanks very much for having us on. I think that what you said is correct, that the excitement in science lies in the unknown. And so in our book, we tried to capture some of that. And some of these questions we ask as scientists, they're also the same kind of questions I think everybody asks about the universe. So questions like, what is time? What is space? How big is the universe? Um, mm-hmm. How did the universe begin? How will the universe end? You know, the kind of things that just as a human being, you wonder about the environment you find yourself in. You don't need a deep science background to understand why these questions are interesting, why they're exciting. Uh, Dr. Demers, would you uh, add something to that list and leave anything out, something you'd like to talk about? Boy, there's a tremendous amount that we don't know. Daniel's book is really fantastic. Um, Things that I I worry about things in a couple of categories. Um, We have some observations of the universe uh, that just don't match our current understanding and theories. So 
uh, accelerating expansion of the universe through dark energy, dark matter um, is in that category. And then there are many things about our theories that we have aesthetic challenges with, where where we have sets of rules that seem to match what nature is, but we don't really understand why the rules are the way they are. They're very strange to us. So, yeah, we, we have categories of categories of things that we don't understand. <laughs> Jimena, you're an historian, and you think about this a little yeah. differently, don't you? Um, yes, I do. I mean, one of the wonderful things about studying the history of science is that you attest to this great progress that has been made and all these new questions and new measurements and new technologies, but at the same time that uh, that when we start knowing something new and figure something out, there's a bit of a piece of the puzzle that ends up missing. And sometimes that doesn't matter for a while. It takes, it takes uh, years, even decades, for this anomaly to stand out and, and become bothersome enough that uh, scientists start to question if they need to completely change the way that they've been thinking about uh, uh, the universe. Is, and I think we're in one of those moments. Well, I was going to ask you about one of those moments. I mean, can you compare us to another point in history that, you know, we were at a crossroads like we are now? Um, uh, absolutely. I think I think this, this period now uh, resembles quite a bit the time in which Einstein's theory became um, uh, famous and, and established. And uh, for the greatest time, uh, um, uh, since the time of, of Newton, even Galileo, we had made a great progress uh, uh, with mechanics, celestial mechanics. And uh, um, um, there were wonderful models about how the solar system worked, and, and some scientists at the time thought that basically all the problems mm -hmm. had been solved. But uh, but suddenly there came these uh, anomalies, um, uh, the perihelion of Mer Mercury, and a phenomenon having to do with electricity and quantum mechanics, and uh, those started to have a salience. And Einstein came with uh, a really wonderful solution, but that wonderful solution uh, comes with a historical legacy, and it came with some problems as well. So so I think that yeah. we're in a very similar period now. Uh-huh. Dr. Whiteson, you're an experimentalist, right? You have to go out and do an experiment to prove what the theoretical physicists are saying. But some of the questions we're talking about seem completely untestable, like how many dimensions are there? Why aren't we made of antimatter? Where, where do these answers to these kinds of questions come from? How do you do that? That's a great question. Um, but I would take issue with your characterization of experimentalists as going out to check what theorists are thinking. I think as experimentalists, we have another opportunity, which is not just to validate or deny theoretical ideas, but to explore the universe. One of our great tools in terms of science is just looking out there to see what's there. Every time we turn on a new device that looks out to the universe, we find something crazy, something mind-blowing, because the universe is full of crazy stuff. And so as experimentalists, I think one of our opportunities, one of our um, obligations is to go out there with an open mind and try to find something new, some tiny little clue, which when we pull on it will unravel an entire mystery. I mean, all of those um, excellent examples that were just mentioned, the photoelectric effect, the perihelion of Mercury, those are great examples of moments in history when we thought maybe we had almost everything figured out and then discovered, mm. in fact, we understand almost nothing. And at this moment in history, we're lucky enough to know that we know very little about the universe. Mm -hmm. We've measured very precisely the fraction of the universe that we understand almost anything about, and it's about 5%, which means we're at this 
era of precision ignorance where we know very well that we know very little about the universe, which hopefully means exciting uh, discoveries are ahead of us. Dr. Demerisi, so I, uh, what I hear uh, Daniel saying is don't wait for the theoretical physicists to tell you what to find. You find something and have them explain it the other way around. Would that be correct? Oh, yeah, it's, it's a combination of things, I think. Um, so one thing that we can do is test very well the theories that we have in front of us that, that appear to be more established. So we have a standard model framework that we can explore and test a higher and higher precision. Given, given what we understand about what we're missing, the extent of it, we're looking for cracks in these theories. So one thing you can always do is, is run that experiment again. And um, we, we have a newly discovered particle, a Higgs boson, that, um, that it is something that we hope will be a key to us to try to understand uh, some of these missing pieces. So we're diving into the current theories that we have. Um, we're certainly paying attention to what theorists are saying about ideas for how we might make progress. We can go chasing after those ideas. And then um, I agree m very much with Professor Whiteson. We have to try to form our experiments in ways that we're open to surprises. So it, whatever is out there, um, we're, we're not going to be missing it because we think we know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Let me give out a number, 844-724-8255. You can also tweet us uh, at SciFry. Um, Dr. Whiteson, here's a question that I, that I wasn't expecting, and, and that is, what is space? I mean, you mean empty space, and it, doesn't it turn out to mean also that there really is no such thing as really empty space? It's an amazing and baffling yet simple question, what is space? And most of your listeners and most people probably think, oh, space is emptiness. It's the backdrop of the universe, right? But we've only recently discovered that space can do things that emptiness can't do. Space can ripple. Those are gravitational waves. Space can expand. That's dark energy. Space can bend, right? That's gravity. And emptiness certainly can't do any of those things. So we don't know what space is, but we know it has these bizarre properties. Mm. And since we've only recently started to figure this stuff out, it means it could have other properties. Space could have phases. You know, imagine you were a fish scientist and you've been swimming around in, in water for a thousand years and just ignoring it because it just feels like the backdrop to everything else and not important or relevant. And then one day somebody shows you, oh, there's a place where the water ends and water can do things like bubble and steam. We don't know what space is. And so we don't know how big is it? What is the shape of it? You know, how does it connect to itself? Um, we have incredible discoveries ahead. I think in a thousand years, people will look back at our view of the universe the way we look at cavemen and cavewomen who looked up at the stars and thought and, and had no idea what they were looking at or even really which questions to ask. So I think we're at the very beginning of this era of discovery. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the phones. Uh, let's go to Rock in Long Island. Hi, hi, Rock. Welcome to Science Friday. Good afternoon. Go ahead because I've heard of studies where they'll do an experiment and get a result and record that. And then if somebody is observing it, like in the room with the same experiment, that, that changes the results. It knows it's being observed. I think you spoke of it on the show, too. Mm -hmm. All right, let's see if we can get a good question. Who'd like to answer that? Oh, go ahead. I think well, that's I, a basic I, I can, quantum I can mechanical talk a little effect. bit about the history, the history of that problem. And, and yes. uh, we usually trace the realization that 
consciousness looking into uh, an experiment changes the phenomena under observation to the discovery of quantum mechanics. And in particular, it's this experiment known as the double slit experiment. So when you shine light um, and you have a, a filter with two slits, it depends on how you measure light, if you see light behaving as a particle or if you see it behaving as a wave. And that depends on what, what you put if you, if you let light pass through both slits or let it pass through only one slit. And it's one of those key experiments that has immense repercussions, philosophical reper repercussions. But I think that it is important to, to, when we talk about these big issues, to go back and say, well, you know, who discovered this and when did it happen and what's the actual um, um, uh, experiment or event that made us rethink our general relation to, between reality and consciousness. So, so where does uh, you know here you hear you have our listeners they're thinking about things we talk about and they're they're keeping track of of what's going on and now you're tracing him into the history of science for us yeah. but but uh, science used to be called natural philosophy right before we called mm -hmm. it science where does philosophy fit into this? That's a great question and I think that it's always been up for debate. Um, uh, quantum mechanics and precisely the, the, the double slit experiment that the, the, that the person who called in re referred to um, is one of the instances in which the very understanding of the experiment itself has been very philosophical. We really don't care that much about shining a beam of light, light into a, uh, a filter that has two slits or, or one, right? But the importance of it becomes philosophical. And, and it's, um, uh, the way that I look at it is, is, is often a fight between philosophers and physicists. Between There's been a great movement uh, in science that started with Einstein at the beginning of the 20th century that tried to push philosophy away, tried to push metaphysics away, uh, of, from science, but I think that this is one of the periods in which what I'm seeing as a, as a historian, as an outsider, is that whenever scientists start discussing these big questions, they always bring in a philosophy, sometimes an, an implicit philosophy. Very frequently, this philosophy is just a mechanistic philosophy that can be traced back mm -hmm. to the philosophy of Descartes um, uh, back in the 17th century. I'm going to have um, to break in and remind but, everybody but I think that. It's up for debate. <laughs> Myra Plato, this is Science Friday from. PRI, Public Radio International. Sorry about that. Um, let's. Uh, I think that what you, uh, what your comment about physics and philosophy is fascinating. I think that there's a friendly interplay between physics and philosophy, but there's also, I think, sometimes a, we need to draw a bright line. Um, for in my view, ideas that can be tested, that can be validated, that can be experimentally confirmed, those fall in the line of physics. So we can do these tests, these quantum mechanical studies that you mentioned, and we can prove the universe works in this weird quantum mechanical way, no matter mm -hmm. how little sense it makes to us. But other things, even though they sound scientific, like ideas of the multiverse, multiple universes out there that we can't interact with, to me, that's in the realm of philosophy or speculation because there's no experiment that we could do to prove it or to test it or to actually demonstrate that it's real. But the fascinating thing is that this line between physics and philosophy is changing. As we develop more powerful tools, we develop the ability to test things that we could never test before. You build a new space telescope, you build a new particle accelerator, you build a new kind of device, you can do experiments to probe reality at a level we could never do before, which pushes back 
the, the boundary between physics and philosophy. Uh, Dr. Demers, but when do you give up on some an idea? You know, for example, supersymmetry. We're looking for supersymmetry at the Hadron Collider. We didn't find it. How, how long do you look for it? The string theory, we can't test that out very well. Yeah, I mean, that, yes. that gets back to the question of how well-motivated are things, right? Um, some of the ideas that we've been pursuing, they come from trying to solve some questions that we have. So supersymmetry as a theory is something that people are really excited about at the Large Hadron Collider. It would allow us to make a step toward a unification of the forces that we know about. It would answer some of our aesthetic questions. Maybe it would provide a dark matter candidate for us. The thing that makes it such an attractive theory is is that it could potentially answer a number of our questions in a way that a lot of people see as elegant. Um, but at the same time, we're not interested in it if it's not uh, if it's not what reality is. Uh, so that's again where I think the the interplay between experimentalists and and theorists is incredibly important. What's been happening as we've been taking data, doing our our experiments, and looking for supersymmetry um, is yeah we have no evidence for it at this point. Theorists are looking at ways that it it can be modified, and okay, maybe you've missed it over here, maybe you've missed it over there. And I I think as long as there is uh, is space for that, I think we we go down that road. But we make sure that it's not the only thing that we're exploring. We don't want our biases of what we think might be the best ideas. Uh, because maybe they're just the ones that we've had, the ideas we thought of, we don't want that to dictate the only thing that we do. Mm. So I think we keep chasing after supersymmetry as long as it's not the only thing that we're doing. Mm. Talking with Amanda Canales, Sarah Demer Demers, and uh, Daniel Whiteson about uh, physics, supersymmetry, all kinds of other questions and challenges in the world of physics. On number 844-724-8255. You can also tweet us at SciFry. We'll take a break and talk lots more right after this break. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Ira Plato, and this is Science Friday. Joining me today is my guest, physicist Dr. Leonard Hofstadter, to talk about all of the exciting research they're doing at Caltech. Thank you for having me. What's the next big thing going to be? Wow, that's hard to say. There's so much going on. We've been collecting tons of data that could revolutionize the way we understand the universe. For instance, there's a particle called a squark, which could prove supersymmetry. That is interesting. Have you found it? What, the squark? Yes. No, no. Wouldn't that be exciting? <laughs> but we're also looking for this electron, the gluino, and the neutralino. Oh, and have you found no. that? No. <laughs> so what have you found? Uh, nothing, actually. But I remain confident. Uh, we've got the best equipment and the best minds all working on it. Although, some days, I'm like, ugh, we've spent so much money. Why haven't we found anything? What are we doing? Yes, there's nothing wrong with your radio. <laughs> Sometimes life can imitate art, imitating life, like this uh, recent episode of The Big Bang Theory, where physicist Leonard uh, Hofstadter hints that perhaps there are too, a few too many unsolved mysteries still out there, and perhaps physics has hit a dead end in solving some of them, which is part of what we're discussing uh, this hour, the frontiers of research in physics, the questions that excite researchers, and the ones that bedevil them. What is space and time? Will the Large Hadron Collider ever produce evidence of supersymmetry? Just what is supersymmetry? Anyhow, we're talking about that uh, with my guest, Imena Nagalis, a professor, a canalis, a, a science historian at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, 
and uh, Sarah Demers, a associate professor of physics at Yale University, experimental physicist at CERN, and Daniel Whiteson, professor of experimental physics at the University of California in Irvine, author of We Have No Idea, A Guide to the Unknown Universe. Uh, Daniel, was uh, was Leonard uh, being a little too harsh on physics there in that little clip? No, he's not too harsh, but there's an element, I think, of that discussion which is missing. When you turn on a big new device like the Large Hadron Collider, sure, you have ideas for what you might see and you hope to discover something, but there's always an element of possible surprise, of, of revolutionary new discovery, and these things don't happen on schedule, right? The whole idea behind basic research is exploration. And when you, you, know, you land a probe on a new planet, you don't know if it's going to be all dust and rocks and rubble or crazy mm -hmm. little aliens waiting to meet you. And that's why we explore, because we don't know around which corner is the crazy new discovery. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sarah was saying before the break, and I think she's right, that we have a good reason to look for supersymmetry. It's well motivated. And let's remember the theoretical community has a lot of credibility here because they predicted for 50 years that we would find the Higgs boson. And that idea came just out of aesthetics. It came out of looking at mathematical patterns and saying, boy, this whole thing would fit together so much more nicely if we had this other piece. And that's the same kind of argument they're making with supersymmetry. The whole idea would be so much cleaner and simpler and make more sense and be prettier, more aesthetically appealing if supersymmetry existed. So it's certainly worth looking at. But when you land on a new planet, you don't just look for, you know, brown cats. You keep a wide open uh, mind for something totally new which could shock you. And my personal scientific fantasy is to do that, is to find something crazy, something bizarre, something strange in our data at the Large Hadron Collider, which makes the theoretical community go, what? That's impossible. There's no way that could be. But if nature tells us, here's the way it works, then you know we, we have to resolve it. Do, do you see yet any strange particles coming out of work at any of the colliders, at any, at Large Hadron Collider, anywhere else, that are making physicists scratch their heads and say, Hey, what is this? How does it fit in anywhere? Has it happened? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. We have a lot of searching left to do. There's a, a lot of territory left uncovered. Mm -hmm. And so far, we've devoted a lot of our resources to checking these ideas that the theorists have, which is worthwhile. And I'm, in my opinion, not enough energy in looking under rocks for strange ideas, ideas nobody's had before, particles we thought were impossible, but nobody checked to see if they might exist. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of that work left to do. So some people say the LHC is a dead end or disappointing, but in my view, it's just the beginning uh, of exploring what this data could reveal. Mm. Amanda, there's uh, this concept yeah. of a mathematical beauty in physics, too, but what if uh, the real answers are, are messy instead of beautiful? Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Amanda? Oh, um, well... Yes, so two things. I mean, going back to the question of, you know, how long should we wait before we discard a theory? Um, the, the historical record shows that that's an incredibly painful thing to do. You know, there are careers invested. People, people um, um, don't want to change the the, the ideas that, that they have. Supersymmetry seems to me to be one of those. Uh, right now, there's this great saying by the physicist Max Planck that science advances funeral by funeral. So it really sometimes takes a whole generation uh, to die off before they can try a completely different, different theory and, and, and test it out. 
um, and 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 one of the criterion for determining, you know, if a, a theory is good or bad, you know, some of some of it is experimental, but there are many times in which the same experiment can be explained away by two radically different theories with radically different philosophical uh, um, uh, attachments uh, to those. So the experiment itself cannot distinguish between uh, the, the one theory or, or the other. And in those cases, aesthetic considerations play a preponderant role in um, convincing certain scientists to side with one or the other. And, um, and sometimes this, the different people have different tastes. Uh, so Einstein, for example, is very convinced, was always very, very convinced that he needed to find uh, unity in, in nature. And uh, his theories were always very sparse and very uh, beautiful. Very, they, they explained a lot by very little. They were very parsimonious. And in that respect, he um, had certain philosophers that, that, that used that as a criterion for, for reality. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, so, so yes, aesthetics and beauty and personal tastes uh, play, play, have played in history a uh, very important role in determining what, what theories um, um, get accepted and which ones get discarded. Let me go to the phones to Erte in Oakland. Hi, Erte. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'll try to make this short and sweet. It's about, uh, I guess, philosophy of language and its limits. So if language is constructed by a certain logic and we use language to both make theories and also formulate observations or make observations, is it possible that that logic might not work when we get further along the lines of exploring and understanding more of the universe, like, is there a limit to to what we are even able to understand? And does that ever factor into um, how people think about these things? Sarah, got it. Got uh, the response. Thank you. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I would say in science, our language is really mathematics, and we've had many instances where new math has needed to be invented in order for us to uh, discover or, or understand or characterize something. I think we're absolutely at one of those places where and that's one reason that it's so important for um, uh, theorists and, and mathematicians to be continuing to work um, in directions that aren't always tied directly to experiment, right? There are some of us who are who are looking at the data and are, are thinking only about the natural world, and there are people exploring off in other realms. And so I, I think absolutely we're at a point where our language of mathematics may need to evolve and, and continue to Im- expand and improve in order for us to make the next discovery. Mm-hmm. And do we not need to find a way, either mathematically or some other way, to unite the, the different forces of nature, and I mean trying to get gravity united with the quantum world, finding quantum gravity, things like that. Well, isn't that not a major stumbling block to moving forward? In the mind of a particle physicist, it is. Um, we, we have uh, four forces that we know about in the universe right now, um, and gravity is the only one where we don't have a quantum theory. And at, at the very basic level of this, um, 
the question is, well, how does it work? How does the moon know that the Earth is there? How do two objects that are interacting gravitationally um, know about the other one's existence? We have right now... Um, uh, general relativity gives us gravitational waves. We have evidence for that. So these gravitational waves are, are moving through space. That's energy um, released because of gravity. But the question is, uh, is that quantized? Is there a, a particle there that's actually doing the communicating of that force? Um, so quantum gravity means we, we have that uh, communicating particle, the mediating particle, that is basically carrying that information. Um, we're really optimistically named it the graviton, um, but we do not have evidence for it do, yet. Do we know how to search for it? That that's tricky. I, I'll I'll take a stab at that, and then um, maybe see if others have have okay. ideas. We do know that if there are large extra dimensions, um, we may we may have evidence for uh, gravitons if we're producing them at the Large Hadron Collider. So there's a, a tiny bit of phase space for us here to actually um, be making them and finding them. And some theorists have been working very hard on this, uh, helping us understand what would it look like in our detectors if we produced gravitons? Uh, what would the signature be so that we could, you know, say mm -hmm. that we'd actually found them? So that's one area that we're exploring. Daniel, would you be able to know a graviton if you saw one? Absolutely. We have a dedicated research program at the Large Hadron Collider to look for gravitons. We have a good theory for what they might look like and how they would behave in the detector. Uh, so far, no hints. Uh, as Sarah mentioned, if we did find them, it would be incredible because not only could we, could we potentially unify general relativity and quantum mechanics, the two foundational pillars of modern science that we've never been able to put together, but we could also reveal crazy things about the universe like additional dimensions of space, you know, more than the three that we're familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I may, I, I'd like to comment on another issue that your caller raised, which is, are we capable of understanding the universe with our language? As Sarah said, it's mathematical, and we're continually inventing new kinds of math to understand the universe and bringing in old math that we didn't realize was physically relevant. But there's no guarantee that human intelligence is sufficient to understand the universe. To me, philosophically, it's already mind-blowing that the universe can be understood, that it can be simplified and reduced to these spare and elegant theories where simplicity and beauty are actually a guide. To me, it's incredible that that's even possible, and I wonder if humanity has the intelligence necessary to contemplate the universe mm -hmm. at its lowest level. Imagine if aliens came and visited and shared with us some deep theory of everything. We might just be flummoxed by their level of mathematics and incapable of understanding it. Mm -hmm. To me, that would be the greatest tragedy. Um, Ira Flater, this is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. If I remember my Einstein quotes correctly, didn't Einstein once say that the most incomprehensible thing about the universe <laughs> is that it's comprehensible? Uh, what do you think, Jimenez? Did he? Is it comprehensible? Um, We've well, talked. That is a huge, huge question. I mean, but it's it's incredibly interesting to think about the you know, the, 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 the 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 question of rationality more generally, and obviously we. One of the hallmarks of science is that it's uh, it's tied to to thinking and to rationality, and that we're making progress and finding things and and, and uh, um, getting it progressively better. But uh, every once in a while, it there that that optimistic uh, um, point of view is uh, called into question, and uh, I don't think that 
that were there. I think that's still very French to to not believe in the power of our uh, um, rational minds mm-hmm. to to understand the universe. But there's certainly been philosophers um, who have had that nihilistic uh, view. Do you think the public understands? Do you think the public understands the limits that science has, that physics has to understanding things, and how physics works, and about how the need uh, to find testable answers for 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 a question to be relevant in science? Does the public get any of this, uh, uh, Daniel? What do you think? I think the public shares an appreciation for the questions and their importance. Um, I think if I when I talk to people about science. I tell them about the kind of questions we're asking, and they want to know the answers. What mm-hmm. is the universe made out of all this stuff? And I think they are very optimistic about the power of science. I think they conceive of science as the thing that brings all this amazing technology into our world, and everybody sees how much it's revolutionized uh, the way we live and the quality of life and all of this stuff. So I don't think that the public is afraid of the limitations of science in that way. Um, I think there's sometimes a disconnect, though, a lot of times people think of science too much as technology-driven, you know, as yes. de- as indicated as, uh, let's go solve this one specific problem, whereas most of the amazing revolutions in science and in technology have come instead from pouring resources into basic research, as, as Sarah said, not targeted at anything specific, just going out and exploring and asking basic questions, and that's when we stumble across amazing answers and crazy revelations. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in my view, we're not doing nearly enough of that Sarah, as a society. Sarah, do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do. I mean, I, I also, I hope that the, um, that the public has some sense of what we're doing because they own this data. Um, it's, it's only through public support that we're able to do this research. So it's really on us as scientists to make sure that we're mm-hmm. communicating. And it does become more difficult as, as things get very technical. Um, it's not only the technical language and the mathematics. It's just that, that nature appears to be so strange. It's hard to talk about quantum mechanics. We're not used to things um, you know, only appearing when they're measured and, and only having some probability of existing somewhere. So even our basic analogies can fail us when we try to communicate what it is that we're doing, uh, even in our own minds. Sometimes all you can do is write down the equations and, and look at the data. So um, in that way, it's really thrilling as a scientist because w- what we're working with is so far beyond um, our, our comprehension and our normal everyday lives in some ways, but it does make it a challenge to communicate. All right. I wonder, that's a great way to wrap it up. Uh, thank you, Sarah Demers, professor, associate professor of physics at Yale, experimental physicist at CERN, Jimena Canales, a science historian, University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, and Daniel Whiteson, professor of experimental physics at UC Irvine, author of We Have No Idea, A Guide to the Unknown Universe. Thank you all for joining me in such a fascinating discussion today. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ira. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Have a great holiday weekend. One last thing before we go. Do you know an awesome educator? We are accepting applications for the Science Friday Educator Collaborative. Participants work with our SciFry staff to develop free classroom resources based on the stories that you hear each week. And if you're interested, you can find an application and more information at sciencefriday.com educator, Science Friday Educator Collaborative, sciencefriday.com educator. We had technical help today from Rich Kim, Sarah Fishman, Jack Horowitz, Charles Berkowitz as our director, senior producer Christopher Antaliata, producers are Alexa Lim, Christy Taylor, and Katie Heiler. And, of course, we're active all week on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all over the place. And you can ask uh, your Echo or your Google Home 
to uh, play Science Friday. I didn't say that. Every day now is Science Friday. Have a great Merry Christmas if you're celebrating. I'm Ira Flato in New York.